Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Neil Haley show here on the total celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program. My co-host author of love is Kim Sorrell. Kim, what's going on? How are you? And I know you're excited about our guest. I am really excited about our guest. I'm doing great. Thanks, Neil. Justin Johnson Cortez. Oh my word. You have done, I don't know how many movies now you probably know the number, but quite no, a few. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a great role in the much anticipated um, prequel to Walker, Walker Independence. Yes. And uh, that has to be a pretty cool role to play. How did that happen for you? Yeah, well, first of all, it is a very cool role to play, and it's a great role to play in, in uh, the cast and the, the crew and production. Everyone's incredible. But, um, yeah, it, it came my way, like most things do, you know, through an audition. And, um, and uh, I, got the, I got the sides for it. And to be honest, and this would probably come up naturally but, or in another way, but I was a little hesitant at first because it's a, it's a period piece and being Native American – I just didn't want that to be the same old story, you know, the same old Indian and that they they've shown in the past with Westerns. And I grew up watching lots of Westerns and I tell people this all the time. I, I wanted to be the cowboy because I had all the fun and, and you know, it was, it was always kind of about them. And so I was a little hesitant. I want to make sure that maybe we're going to do something different here and that this character wasn't just going to just kind of be expendable in a way. And um, yeah, but after meeting the uh, producers and director, they just they really eased my mind about that. And I was on board. 100%. So let's talk about this, Justin. You know, think about Yellowstone. Do you think Yellowstone's depicting Native Americans in the right way? You know, I think Taylor Sheridan is doing a really good job. He, he's always been great about putting Natives in his, in his stories. And it, it's not necessarily that he's not depicting them in the right way. And, and I would love to work with him in the future. Um, but I think with me in the past watching those other, uh, you know, growing up watching Westerns, it's yeah. like, the the Indians were kind of just just on the side of it, and and what I love about Taylor is he's kind of putting them in the mix. You know, he, he's getting them out there, and, and and these characters have have arcs and they're interesting, and, and they play vital roles in the story. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to play a vital role in the story. So I think I think he's doing a great job, and people love his shows. And you know, he can't do any wrong over there. Um, I have a friend who's on on his show, so I think it's they're about to be on one of his shows. So I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that yet, actually. Um, <laughs> But uh, he's um, he's doing great stuff, and and you know any any opportunity for diversity to be on the screen and right. to kind of show different culture is always great, man. So I'm pumped for it, and I think it's it's great that people are kind of coming back towards westerns. And I, I feel like Taylor is kind of he's he's giving a certain demographic, a certain generation these shows, and I'm excited about our show because I feel like we might be able to reach a younger audience a bit, you know, the younger Especially adult audience. Young. CW gives yeah, the CW, and, and we have great fans of the CW. CW is amazing, and, and, and not to say it's only young people because we got people right. all across the board. But I am excited to see maybe the younger generation getting a glimpse into the westerns with us. Yeah. You know, um, think about another depicting does well. And I'll, I'll pass it back on to Kim. Is Outer Range? I don't know if you got the chance to see Outer Range. It's really well done. I don't know if there's gonna be a second season or not uh, that was on Amazon. Oh, I hope so. I really, I really liked it. It was a good show and it was, it kept me going and I didn't see the Rotten Tomatoes, the level I thought it should have been, but you never know. The fans always have the next set. All right, Kim. Yeah. Great show. Great show. Yeah. So here you get to really tap into your heritage, but you've played other roles where that hasn't been the case. So Mm -hmm. what is the difference for you? Like, how does that feel? 
Oh, you know, I, you know, I love playing. Any opportunity to act is is great. You know, anytime you get to do what you what your dream is, it's incredible. So, um, you know, I I think it's I think it's wonderful to be able to play in a culture that is, um, you know, that means something to you. I think that's a great opportunity. And actually, for this, I play Apache, which I'm not Apache. I'm Yaki. Um, but I get to learn Apache for the show. So I'm, I'm kind of getting a glimpse into a culture that isn't my own. And uh, I feel very fortunate that they welcomed me into their, into their world a bit. And they gave me that permission to portray this character. Um, I have great people that are doing translations and, and uh, that family is incredible. And I, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do the show without them. And so the fact that they've kind of given me that blessing to speak their language and, and to portray their heritage is really, really means a lot to me. So I have a big respect and I feel like a big responsibility to be able to do that. Um, and I want to do it well. And, you know, ultimately I love, I would love to just be able to play any role without having to be, you know, fill any box, check any mark, you know, as a diversity cast, you know, I, I want to be able to play any role that you see and maybe not, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. No one has to justify why, why I'm that character, I guess, if, if that makes sense, you know? Um, yeah. But I, I do, I, I, there's, there's, a, there's a big responsibility that I feel personally for playing native characters. And I wanna make sure that, you know, I'm gonna do as best I can to do it right. And the producers and, and the team behind Walker Independence, they're really doing their best to make sure we're doing it right as well. So. Yeah, and it's interesting when you talk about that, the, that process, the responsibility now you talk about it a little bit, but how, what other actors have you, do you look up to that have, have playing the, the Native Americans that you look up to as an actor? Yeah, well, you know, and like I said, the ones that I grew up with, they, I feel like, you know, the, there's always been great actors in the past that, that have done it, but I feel like just coming today, so there's a great show called the uh, Rutherford Falls and uh, uh, Michael Gray eyes is on that show. He's a, he's a great actor. And I feel like um, that show in particular, it's, it's, a, it's a native story, you know, and, and it stars, um, oh, I forget his name. He's a comedian, he's a funny guy, he's a great actor. Uh, he's not native, but it stars him, but it's, it's just such a, uh, the, the culture, if you watch it, you know, there's so much native culture in there. And I really admire that about that show. And, you know, like I said, Michael Gray is a great actor and I love watching his work, uh, whether it's on that or, or, or anything else he's done. I forget the, the name of it. Derek C. in France did a, a mini series with uh, Mark Ruffalo and, and Michael was in that show. And he just does great work all around, you know? So to be able to just see working actors that are native, I just, I'm always just pumped and excited for it. You know, um, even when they're my competition, even when I know that like, you know, Martin Sensmere is going out there and, and he's getting all these great roles, but it's, it's awesome. It's just a victory for everyone, you know? Exactly. Yeah, that's gotta be a good feeling for sure. But you've got this look, this face that you could be anybody and, and play any role. You do such a great job. But I'm uh, curious, like, um, because you're Native American and there's been so much bad that the country has done so many things that are not going well, uh, so many things that could change. How do you see it? Like, what, what would you like to see changed? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a heavy question. It's a big question. You know, um, yeah, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of history. And, you know, all we can do is move forward and try our best, you know, and I like, I like to see what people are doing. And I like, I like that. It seems like a lot, a lot more people are taking responsibility for maybe the past and, and willing to see change. And, and that movement started with the Native community and it's moving forward. And, and you know, it's just like giving, giving ourselves a voice and, and allowing us to be heard. And, and social media did a good job of, you know, I'm not a huge social media fan. I, I'm, I'm just bad at it, but it, I've seen some of the great things you could do when it comes to getting positive messages out there. Um, so it's just like, you know, uh, it starts here with the stories being told, you know, allowing people to tell their stories that, that, maybe weren't told before so these younger kids could could understand that they have a place and, and that and they have a voice and, and they're seen and it gives them conf confidence going forward and then they could start to change there you know it starts in the community and it really it really goes out but we need to give people the, the confidence and the courage and kind of like and make them know that they're seen um a big movement right now i don't know if you've heard of mmiw 
It's uh, about missing and murdered indigenous women and indigenous people all around. Um, but that's a, it's, it's like an epidemic, you know, uh, these women are 10 times more likely to be violently assaulted than, than non-native women are. Um, I actually just finished shooting a film that revolves around that issue. So that's, that's something, a movement that is really, yeah, it's called Gift of Fear. So that will be out hopefully next year. And, um, and yeah, it's just, you know, movements like that are, are trying to make people more aware of what's going on and maybe things that people didn't know was happening and just get allies, you know? And I, and I think that, that that's the thing you saying, you're, you say you're not very good on social media or however you termed it. The bottom line is that you're taking that responsibility to speak out during the interviews and all that stuff. And that you probably are, you just, you don't have the time, the shoots, all yeah. those different things. When you have some downtime, you just grab it, jump on certain things and, and provide that. And uh, I'm very impressed by how you're representing your Native Americans and they have to be very proud and there should be more actors in that, this industry. It's missing truly. And yeah. I think that you're going to help step that up through these opportunities through again, the role. So I'm going to pass it back to Kimo talk about the, about the show. And I'm ultimately a fan of the first one, Walker, Texas Ranger. So I have no idea the nuances between all those. So I'll have a question. Probably mm -hmm. Go ahead, Kimo. All right. <laughs> Yeah, so the show is uh, coming when? When when is it released? Uh, October sixth. Yeah, so it'll be out October sixth, and uh, I hope I got that right. I think that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, dates get jumbled in your mind, but it'll be out this fall. So this fall, you can check it out. Walker Independence on the CW, and we'll be airing right after the series premiere, third uh, season three premiere of uh, Walker. So it'll be our series premiere, their season three premiere. And, and yeah, so you could check out both. And I know you're a fan of the, the previous one you said, and that's a great yeah. show. Great people behind that show. Great cast. Um, yeah. And Walker, you know, Walker Independence, we're, we're, we're just excited to be a part of the family, you know, and, and tell this story, this origin story of the Walkers. And, you know, we have a great set of, uh, you know, we have a great cast. We have a great set of characters to show people. And it's going to be a lot of fun, man. Like this morning, we're out there riding horses. We're, we're training. So we start shooting oh, wow. uh, very soon here. So we're out, we're out riding horses. It's just, you know, doing a period piece could be a lot of fun. And we're, uh, we're definitely enjoying it. So take me back now. Okay, so let's go to the history. You, I'm sure you had to learn about the Walker on the CW as well once you got the role, unless you already were watching it. Go to Walker, Texas Ranger. They had a remake of Walker, Texas Ranger with Walker three years ago. And, this, and it's the third season for that. Explain that and what's the difference between Walker and Walker Independence? Because we have so many things to binge now and watch. Yeah. So explain, yeah. Well, the beauty of it being a prequel is um, we're connected to them, but we, we're, we're kind of free to kind of go where we go, you know? And, and I wish I could actually have more answers for you because I don't know yet. I don't know it all. <laughs> I uh, I know that uh, if you watch the trailer, you could see this very, very beautiful, very strong woman. And she says, I'm Abby Walker. And that's kind of the, the, the taste that people are going to get for now. And as we dig in, then we'll figure out, all right, how does she connect to the Walker family? But ultimately, this is, you know, this is a matriarch. This is the, the beginning of, of the Walker legacy. So that's, okay. that's kind so, of the so connection. And Walker, just to try to get the answer to that question, Walker, Texas Ranger is exactly the same Walker, just in a different different actors, a, a remake of Walker, Texas Rangers, Walker. Is that correct? Yeah, now yeah, yeah. Going, so, and and now, then now we're going, we're going in the way back. Way back. And that's yeah. gotta be cool. I mean, and, and that and bringing oh, back Westerns. There's, they were really smart, the CW. And I'm, Kim, I'm gonna explain that to you as well, is that Westerns has such a huge following. Westerns, there is such a cult for Westerns that are lacking. And now, as you said, bringing the diversity and bringing it in the right way compared to Westerns back in the 50s and 40s and, and 60s to where we are today, that's fantastic for where it's going. But ultimately, there are Western fans everywhere and they got to be excited about this and now bringing a younger generation to Westerns. I was bringing up something in an interview I was doing with another celebrity that's big into metal. And I said, you know, thanks to Stranger Things, now 
heavy metals coming back. So you, you yep. find these different trends of young people finding different things. And am I right? Is it, was one of the characters in this new season of Stranger Things is a Native American, right? Am I correct? Uh, yeah. I believe so. I forget, I forget his name. I think he's the pizza, the guy who the drives pizza the pizza guy, The pizza guy, yeah. whoever guy. Nah, I'm just a huge stranger. Of I gotta yeah. find enough time <laughs> to binge everything. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where's the time, man? Well, you better make time for walking. Dependence. You got to check. Yeah, it out. I am going to make time for that for sure, and we're going to get the last thing. But go ahead, back to you, Kim. Uh, any <laughs> questions you have for Justin? Yeah, yeah, I think it's very exciting, and um, I know so many people that are so into westerns and watch the old ones. So to see the new ones will be so much better, just so much better. So uh, yeah, so we're hopefully you're going to do season after season of this. Right? Yeah, hopefully. hopefully. So how many years before does it does it take place? So this takes place back in like the 1870s. So we're going over 100 years back. You know, we're we're going we're going way back. And you know, kind of to talk about what you said, how you know you get this younger generation. It's because you know the people making this show, they grew up watching westerns. It's, it's a part of them, and and you know you want to make what you love. And so it's really great because that's what happens. You, you fall in love with something, you make it, and you pass it down. You pass it down to your next generation. And the people, you know, the cowboy, the the Western culture, it's huge. And so it's great to have people that are excited to see this show. And and I'm excited for them to see what see what Callian brings, you know. So I play Callian, he's Apache, and he's a Apache scout on the show. And um, he's kind of outside of independence, and he's curious about it. He has a connection into town through the Deputy Augustus. Um, but he's hesitant, you know, because he's kind of torn between two worlds. And so I'm excited for people to see Callian and meet him and uh, see where this character goes. And, and especially for a lot of fun. Like I said, we're going to have a lot of fun, man. It's, there's going to be some action. There's going to be drama. There's going to be, you know, there's going to be a little bit for everybody. And I, I, I feel like, you know, you could, you could have a grandpa watching the show, but you could also have, you know, your teenage daughter watching the show. Sure. It's going to be for everybody. For sure. So again, best place we can connect with you, social media and stuff. Where can we go? Best place. Instagram. It's the only one I got. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not on Twitter or anything else, but Instagram, it's Justin J underscore Cortez. I believe you just type in Justin Johnson Cortez. It should pop up. Um, yeah, I try, I try to stay on it. try to let people know what's going on and, and post some pictures and, and stuff when we're, when we're having some fun, but I'm going to try to keep up with it. But I got some great cast members who are, you know, follow follow Walker Independent um, on the CW, and they're going to be putting stuff out there. But great cast members here, and, and such a great family we got here, and they'll be all be posting fun stuff. So I'll be popping up on all theirs as well. You'll be jumping on it more. Trust me, it'll probably it'll happen <laughs> for sure, and all that stuff. And yeah. hey, you're a busy actor, and that's the good thing is to stay busy. And Kim, where can we connect with you? Best place. Yeah, Kim Sorrell. I'm literally the only Kim Sorrell in the world spelled my way. S-O-R-R-E-L-L-E, -L -L -E, but KimSorrell.com. Uh, my latest book, Love Is, is available everywhere, Amazon and everywhere else. Justin, I'd love to send you a copy. And, Absolutely, please do. Yeah, well, great, great. Well, I'll get your address and send it over to you. All right, fantastic. And last thing, NeilHaley.com. Check out the media giant. Uh, you know, again, I'm six foot ten. And I'm the giant of media. So check me out. And I appreciate everyone. And it was great to connect with you, Justin. One other thing is my celebrity podcast is number 12, according to Feedspot. So always good to get you out there in different places. And it was a great to talk with you, Justin, and appreciate it. Oh, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back. In just a We're back to The Neil Haley Show. And my guest is an entrepreneur. Yeah, military man. I want to learn about his military career, his his entrepreneurship, and now life after business, and how he's really out there speaking. He wrote it. He did a TED talk. All these things. So I'm excited to welcome Alan Porter. Alan, thanks for stopping by, man. How are you? Well, I'm fine. I, it's it's a great honor and privilege to be here. I I really thank you for this. Absolutely. I want to thank you for your service. And that's the thing we make a mistake in this country is anybody that has worked, been in the military, they have served us and we should honor them constantly because without them, we wouldn't have the freedoms that we have today. So thank exactly. you for your service. So tell me how you, some of your military career and some of your highlights that you're talking to me off air about. Well, uh, when I was 19 years old, I had a 13 draft number. I was married and my wife's pregnant and, had, and the recruiter told me, he says, Alan, I got bad news for you. I get I keep, I keep you, well, I get bad news. 
yeah, I know. I got a 13 draft number, but I can keep you out of Vietnam. I said, okay, what are you going to do? He said, well, you got to have combat arms, armor, artillery, or infantry. I said, well, and keep me out of Vietnam. They tell you back, tell you that anything. But I want armor. Uh, I had my, I lived in Nebraska. They had my advanced individual training in Fort Carson, Colorado. I'd never been out of state before. So I'm out there at Fort Carson. I had a guarantee for three years. They just moved the 4th Infantry Division back from Vietnam. And uh, in my third year, I uh, elected to go to flight school, one officer flight school down in Fort Rucker, Alabama. And that's the best move I've ever made. I became an instructor pilot. I, I finished up my career as a Blackhawk instructor pilot. Okay. Uh, I tell people I had a safe landing for every takeoff. I dodged all the bullets. I did things with special operations that uh, – there are very, very people in the United States that have ever, ever done this. I qualified for the National Helicopter Team in 1981. We, we went over to Polskrop Trebanowski in Poland and won the World Helicopter Championships. Oh, wow. And we beat the Russians. They've never been beat before. That's one of the greatest things that ever has happened in my life. And I tell you, when, when the National Anthem is played, I cry every time. Especially that time and your age and we know about the russians and yeah. especially almost the same time as the olympic miracle in the 1980 exactly right and i remember that day because i was in grafenbeer germany i was flying a general and we're going back to the aircraft that day and he stopped troops in the middle formation and said do you realize what happened last night the hockey team beat the russians that's never happened before it was very – I, I remember, there's certain things that you remember at certain points in your life. Well, I remember I was only like eight years old, but I, it was so exciting. And I was this is the first Olympics I was really into. And, wow, what an amazing opportunity before they allowed professionals to have that. And that was really what set hockey on its level in the United States to see that unbelievable thing and to beat the Russians. Because at that point, we were fearful of a nuclear war. We were fearful yeah. of all these up kind of things we're fearful for now. Isn't it history repeats itself? in so many ways after carter who destroyed the country completely reagan came in and changed everything and, and brought the economy back and everything but it took a couple of years and the it just started from the uh you know releasing the hostages to everything and then everything started getting better and better and better with the economy and the 80s in which kicked off a really good 80s life with reagan as president so hopefully that could happen. We'll talk about that later. You talked about after your career in the military, again, thank you again for your service. You talked about you owned a mortgage company. And so tell me specifically, was that your first entrepreneurship? Was the well, no, I, I got my real estate license back in 1985. I, I was in station in Korea in 85. I came back. I got a Greek police program. And uh, I got my real estate license because all I was doing was going to school at night, playing golf during the day. And I got my bachelor's degree while I was in the Army. And uh, so I kept my, my uh, real estate license active. And then when I retired in 1993, I sold real estate for maybe a year and a half. And I, I really didn't like it at all. And somebody taught me into doing the mortgage business and, and uh, helping people with debt. So I got into that. And then I got my own mortgage uh, company. And up until 19, or excuse me, 2008, when the mortgage crisis uh, uh, hit, uh, I loved it. I, mean, I, made a, I made a great, great six-figure income. I had about five loan officers working for me. But when that hit, things changed for me. And I saw what, what the Wall Street was doing because banks, as an example, you could go to, with, with a bank and you could go to your closing statement and you have a 6 point or a 2.5 interest rate or whatever. Now, the bank may be making uh, a half a point or a whole point on the backside of that interest rate. And they wouldn't have to show it on the HUD statement. But for independent brokers, I have to show that. So that shows an expense. So I would lose a massive, some massive amounts of business to banks because of that. But I give them the same interest rate. But so I got tired of that. I was doing 10 times the work uh, uh, and making one-tenth the money. But I, some tragic things happened to my family. Uh, approximately 15 years ago, my son uh, at 35 became 100% disabled. He has type 1 diabetes. Oh my. And uh, he's got this disease called neurocardiogenic syncope. It shuts off the blood flow to the brain. Oh, he comes like a paraplegic. You can't walk. To, I mean, I've got videos of it. It's, it's absolutely mortifying to me. And three years after that, he's still not getting his disability. He only got that in the summer of 2010. That's after we hired an attorney. But we went to Little Rock, Arkansas, where he lived with his wife, Lynn, at age 39. 
and they had two daughters, had two daughters, uh, Taylor and Lauren. They were seven and four, and everything was fine. Uh, we went down to the Christmas, came back, but on January fifth, two thousand ten, I'll, I will never forget this. Another thing sticks in my mind. Lynn calls me, says, "Alan, I've been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. They give me six months to live," and I was, uh, of course, we were devastated. Right. And uh, Lynn died a year later, but I knew nothing about insurance products. Okay. I thought you had to die to benefit from insurance products. I said, and I started learning things. Lynn had a terminal illness writer on her life insurance policy, but let her access up to 90% of the death benefit within one year of diagnosis, completely tax-free. I had no, no idea. And 99% of people out there don't eat it. But if it had not been for the insurance products, my son would be bankrupt. And it took a huge financial strain off of me. But about, a, I think, two years later, my daughter just had her, her third grandson. I mean, excuse me, my, my third grandson. And uh, she got breast cancer. Oh. We had 16 chemo treatments, a double mastectomy, 35 radiation treatments, and, and uh, reconstructive surgery. And now she's eight, year can eight, eight or nine years cancer-free, thank God. But what... Insurance products have done for my family can do for everybody's family. Right. Protect their financial future. Protect them from long-term care. Protect them from everything out there. The stock portfolio cannot. So I started studying insurance products. I've, I've just finished my fifth book, Wealth Beyond Taxes. I've spoken at Harvard. I've spoken at West Point. I've been published in over 320 publications across the United States. Wow. All, what I want to do, I want to educate people on the financial strategies that the wealthy and the financial institutions have been using against us for years. And one of the greatest things, what I do, I specialize in reducing tech, debt and taxes. I show people how, to, how I can eliminate, or I can reduce or possibly eliminate both debt and taxes and give them more spendable income. Oh my. I, I educate people on the effective interest rate. And I'll give you a perfect example. I have a friend of mine. Uh, I showed him a tax-free retirement plan that I've done, and he wanted to do that. And he just retired from the military, and COVID hit. He says, Alan, I can't do this because I don't know how COVID's going to affect our, our uh, income. Right. So last fall, he called me up, and he said, Alan, let's do your retirement plan. I, I really like it. It protects my family, gives me tax-free retirement that does not affect taxation of Social Security does not affect the means testing of Medicare Part B. It avoids probate. It protects you from liens, liabilities, and uh, litigation. And I said, okay, let me ask you a question. How much debt do you have? So he said, well, like, I just bought a new house. I got two car payments. He, he had 11 payments. He was, right. he was from, I don't know, $496,000 in debt. And I said, what's your interest rate on your mortgage? He said, it's 2.75. So what I did is I did a report for him. We did a Zoom conference the next week. And I said, no, you have a debt. You have debt just like everybody else in the United States. But that's not your problem. This is your problem. I showed him on the, on the chart. And your, your debt, your problem is your effective interest rate. You have a 2.75% interest rate on your mortgage. Your effective interest rate is over 49%. He said, how's that possible? He said, by, by the way, what is that? I said, well, understand this. You're not going to get down to the 2.75% until the last few months of your mortgage. Now, between all of your bills, these 11 bills, he had, he had excellent interest rates. Mm -hmm. His average effective interest rate was over 43%. Wow. So I asked, I said, what financial vehicle are you investing in that will give you a 43% return on your money? He said, well, there's absolutely nothing. I said, yeah, nothing that's legal unless you hit an IPO or something. Right. But let's get rid of this debt first and go this. So what I showed him, by the time we end up, I said, do you have a plan to get out of debt? He said, well, yeah, I do. It's gonna, I'm going to make an extra payment on my mortgage, uh, and we'll be out of debt by, by your, uh, night, or excuse me, 2022, excuse me, in 22 years. And I said, well, how would you be, like to be out of debt in 10.13 years? Mm -hmm. I'm going to save you over $65,000 in interest. And you're going to have in a cash-free, a tax-free cash account that you become your own banker 
over $139,000 with a $600,000 death benefit that you can use for long-term care or a legacy for your children. He says, oh my God, and I'll never get this. It's one of the most emotional presentations I've ever gave. He's a, he's a, he's a big, tall black guy, teeth white as ivory. And he looked at me, and he smiled from ear to ear, and there's tears coming down his eyes. He said, Alan, you made a dream of mine come possible. Wow. I never thought I could be out of debt at 52. Now we can do anything that we want for the rest of our lives because you showed me this strategy. Nobody else has ever talked to him, talked to me about it. Well, I said, don't feel lonely because 99% of the people I talk to, to include CPAs, attorneys, financial planners, and, and all my clients, why hasn't everybody, anybody ever told me about this stuff before? I said, number one, they're not educated. Number two, they're not licensed to sell the product. And number three, especially with financial planner, it's the way they're paid. But what I do, I, I, my business, I treat them like, like a doctor, okay? I'll ask question after question, and I expect answers because I need to know what is in your goals and desires, what you want to happen. Because if I don't have answers to these questions and give you some feasibility study or some financial plan, it will be malpractice. Now, I have a team of people that I work with, top CPAs, top financial, excuse me, top uh, tax specific attorneys and other specialists in their fields mm-hmm. where we, when I, where I collaborate with them so we can come up with financial solutions for people's problems. And, you know, not everybody can know everything. And one of the things I, one of the things I tell affluent clients, because I work with a lot of doctors, lawyers, business owners, right. And they tell me, well, I've got my attorney, my CPA, my financial planner to, to handle all my tax decisions, my financial uh, decisions. I said, listen, I'm not here to replace your financial planner or any of your advisors. You may have the best financial planners in the world, but it's what they don't know. That may end up costing you hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, oh, to taxes, fees, and lost opportunity costs. And when I, when I tell them that, they said, no, you're, you're probably right. But there's many, many strategies out there that people don't know about because they don't know the tax codes. And that's one of the things, one of the things I ask business owners, what's your business, big, what is your biggest expense? Well, my, my business loans, my this, I said, that. no, your biggest expense is taxes. I said, you're absolutely right. Well, how would you like to get a hundred thousand or $200,000 tax deduction? Not this, this year, but 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, do you realize how much money that would be for your family in a tax-free environment? Yeah. And people don't know about this, but they it's need to really be. really don't. And it's stuff that, holy cow, Alan, that people need to contact you. You did a TED Talk, too. Tell us about what the TED Talk you did. Well, I've, I've, I've put in for that. I have not done the TED Talk yet. Oh, you're not done the TED Talk. Okay. But I, w- I want to do one very, very badly. So because like we- what I'm telling you tonight. People don't know. No, no, we don't know. It's a secret that's missing. And you're the man to do it. So where can people find information on you? Because I'm intrigued. You're kind of giving me a taste, but you're not giving you're giving me the what, not the how. That's why people have to contact you. Where are they where are they gonna go? Where's the best well, it's, it's just like when people ask me, well, how do you do that? It's, it's not how I do it. It's who I know that knows how to do it. And there's a great book written by Dan Kennedy, Who Not How. Right. He's but a- uh they can they can always call me at 910-551-1046. That's my number. My uh, my website is also out there. Uh, but LinkedIn, you can reach me at Strategic Wealth. The number zero, the, uh, my email, excuse me, Strategic Wealth, the number zero at gmail.com. Uh, my website's out, out there. You can Find me on Facebook. My business Facebook is Strategic Wealth. I also have another Facebook and LinkedIn, which is a porter at debtfreeforlifeadvisors.com, and where I specialize only in, in debt-free situations. Because when you get, you need to understand, debt is probably the biggest problem with people in the United States. Absolutely. Uh, living the life they want to, they, but they don't realize it. You know, they say, oh, I have a 2.75 interest rate. Well, that's great, but that's not what you're paying. When people understand this and they see the results of something like this, it, it's a it's a uh, paradigm shift in their thinking. Truly, and it can change their lives. I, what I I changed my people, the people I work with, I changed their 
life, both emotionally and, and financially. Because what's happened to my family, I don't want that to ever happen to anybody, especially with the health of your, your children. But the financial repercussions, I'm probably bankrupt right now for, what, for insurance products. Now, understand, I'm a registered investment advisor. I have a team of people that can do uh, uh, stocks and bonds. And they get paid a fee whether, you know, this is what gets me. They get paid a fee whether you make money or not, like, like uh, all the uh, advisors out there that do, right. do stocks and bonds. I'm a certified financial advisor, excuse me, a certified financial fiduciary. And uh, I don't understand how people that just sell stocks and bonds could be calling themselves a fiduciary when it's obviously they cannot be looking out for the best interest of their clients because they charge a fee whether the client makes money or not and don't show them the best alternatives out there. Wow. Such great information. Alan, we appreciate you coming by. Uh, I, I, I'm intrigued by many things and I'm glad we got to meet each other and you come on the show. Definitely have to come on again. So appreciate it. Well, thank you. There, I mean, there's many, many things that I can talk about. Uh, yeah. I just like uh, in retirement, people 62 and over have over $9 trillion of home equity in their homes. And they sit there. They don't use it. Oh, I my gosh. How to use this money to create tax-free income That's for themselves. Huge. Huge information. People need to reach out to Alan. I appreciate it, Alan. Thanks for stopping by. Neil, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show. And two areas we're going to discuss today, cardiovascular disease and also diabetes. Two of them, I bet you when my guest is going to explain more and more, he helps fight and stop. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Dr. Zeline Wang. Uh, Dr. Wang, thanks for stopping by. And, you know, when you talk about those two, how big of killers, diabetes and also cardiovascular disease are really major ones that end up in the hospital and death compared to a lot of other illnesses that are out there, right? Yes, yes. And cardiovascular disease is a leading cause of death in the United States and the Western uh, countries. And it so far have no other disease can compete with it. So I have been practiced as a cardiologist for uh, about 20 something years. And uh, I've been practicing in China, in Japan, in the United States. Uh, is it nice to reduce the artery atherosclerotic plaque, which is a culprit of uh, a disease causing heart attack and stroke? So <clears throat> the plaque is really is a, what is a fundamental problems. For years, people have been working around the plaque, never directly working on the plaque. So my practice just doing that, we have been doing that for 13 years. We have successfully reduced the plaque in the artery and without, so that the patient doesn't have to go to cardiac surgery or stenting. So that's the way we've been doing. And uh, we, at the beginning, we, before we start with the 70, 80% of our patient had to go through the stenting or bypass surgery. Mm. Now we, in the past five years, we have down to one patient per year. That's how much re reduction we have. And the, not only that, patients' outcome is a whole lot better. Patients' functionality is better. Patients become asymmetric and patients uh, uh, have a more productive life. Mm. So that's what we've been doing. And uh, that's what we call the plaque burden reduction therapy. And it's a non-invasive way to reduce the uh, plaques. And uh, we have many, many patient cases there. And during this process, we find out if we don't treat type 2 diabetes, our patient's atherosclerotic plaque is not shrinking, not only not shrinking, but also started growing. So we, I have to tackle with the type two diabetes as a cardiologist. And over past the seven, eight years, 
we have a patient reversed from diabetes, type 2 diabetes. We have patient and many, about 25 patients now from type 2 diabetes become a non-diabetic. In oh, other wow. words, they no longer meet the criteria of diabetes, type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes. Uh, we ju I just saw one of the patients happened to be a, a hospitalist. He's an internist. Hmm. I saw him today. He has been eight years. He has taken no medication and uh, meet the criteria of uh, non-diabetic for eight years. We have about another one, seven years. We have, those are two longest we have in the middle. And recently we have a patient who was 60 years old on type on insulin 62 units. We started working on him for two years now. He's off insulin for- Fantastic. Uh, uh, yeah, off insulin. And also amazing thing is when in the medical school, we've been taught diabetic peripheral neuropathy, once you develop it, you're never gonna be reversed. On him is a miracle because he no longer have the symptoms of a peripheral neuropathy, which is a numbness, burning sensation, heavy like a lead, and wow. it's all gone. So, so, so you, this is not really known in medicine a lot, Dr. Wang. You're, a lot of times you're just kind of trying till it's too late doing certain measures. By being preventative, how yeah. have you pushed for that? Because a lot of people <clears throat> in your field don't do that. What makes no. you so? What, yeah, why did you decide to do that? Your thought process of really so that you can treat the problem a lot earlier than, or do it differently than just going to evasive stuff. Yeah, the the very reason I started because uh, my motivation is to shrink the plaque near the artery. But when I find out I cannot do that anymore, I start to tackle with type two diabetes. When I start doing that, I find out if the hemoglobin even see more than 5.7, they still have complications related to type 2 diabetes. Once I push the hemoglobin A1C below 5.7, all these complications start disappearing. Right. So I said okay, the pre-diabetes diagnosis uh, cutoff is 5.7. If your hemoglobin A1C above 5.7, you are pre-diabetic until you reach 6.4. When you reach over 6.4, you become a full-blown type 2 diabetes. Mm. So I said, why I just push down to 5.7 below? That way, I, my patient all have a good outcome. I see. So and you're really focusing on eliminating the type 2 diabetes. Then the plaque decreases in the heart, and then the mm -hmm. then then you don't have as many heart attacks and deaths. Yes, is that correct? Yes, yes. that's the, wow. that's the, my motivation. So but what do you tell, what do you tell your patients to get that way? It's not through medication, that's for sure. What do you give them? What ideas and things do you do when you treat them so that you can get the type two diabetes to disappear? Uh, I have uh, developed a program called a drip. Drip stands for. Is a DRIP stands for Diabetes Reversal Intensive Program. So what I have found out the type two diabetes fundamental problem is insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is a game layman's term. You give a certain amount of insulin. Normally you can reduce certain amount of glucose in your blood. That's how we check the blood. But for example, it's not a real true, but I just, give a uh, figure. For example, one unit of insulin can reduce 10 milligram per deciliter glucose, but when you become insulin resistant, you may only reduce six, seven, maybe five, two milligram per deciliter. So that's why you require more insulin to, re to reduce insulin to the normal range. Over time, you make your beta cell, which produce insulin in pancreas, become sick, swollen, because they over, overwork. When reached to the certain point, which is their ceiling, they will stop working and they get a lot sicker. Some of them just become died functionally. 
or maybe they just so that way the the one you have reduced significant number of beta cell not producing any insulin anymore and other just sick just only already reached wow. the seeding they can't produce anymore you're gonna see your glucose in your blood start to spike very high so that's the fundamental problem so what i do is first i try to increase insulin sensitivity number two i will reduce the requirement of your body to reduce to to produce insulin by reduce certain amount of medicine that trigger for diabetes for, for glucose production and then we reach to the certain point we will put a patient called a hospital for beta cell to become better resting they just don't pr pr produce only minimal amount of insulin then we do just like the same thing the hospitalization patient started going to physical therapy right. we, we, which we slowly increase insulin um, I mean, uh, uh, glucose and therefore you slowly increase your work perm functionality that's how we gradually we restore all the beta cell function and not allow not allow them to overwork that's the whole process what we do all right so where can you find information on that do you have a website and stuff uh, i have uh, uh i have website website have a not a whole lot of information but mostly it's in my facebook page called heart care plus heart care plus is my off office name so you can find a whole lot of cases studies and a new patient uh, reverse and we'll we'll put it in there but we don't put all of them some of them because they want to keep confidentiality so we don't do that but only we get permission from patients that we'll put it in there and being the testimonial cases. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on, Dr. Wang. It's great news to know there's a non-invasive way. And I'm sure you know providers all over the country that are doing what you're doing in Mississippi. So I appreciate you stopping by. Thank you very much for the opportunity. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of The Neil Haley Show. I'm excited first to welcome the program my co-host, Jasmine Perez, CEO of Haley's Comet. Jasmine, how are you? What's going on? I'm good, Neil. How are you? I'm fantastic. We're so excited about our guest, aren't we? Yes, we are. I'm so excited to welcome from NBC's America's Got Talent, the one, the only, Howie Mandel. Howie, how are you? I don't know. I really <laughs> don't know. I'm not an expert. I think I feel good, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm sure you're great. And with that, I want to ask, what does it take to win these days with the competition, with the fierce competition there is, and what does it take to win over the judges? Well, you know, just surprise us is, is number one and surprise the audience. I think the level, the bar has been set, you know, each uh, consecutive year, the, the year before sets the bar for what people like, even not only us as judges, but people who are going to be axed will go, oh, I can do that, but I can set myself on fire and do that, or I can hang three stories in the air and do that. So it just gets better and better and better and more surprising each year. And this year we said yes to more acts than we've ever said yes to before. This is just, it blew us away. And maybe it's because so, so many people were just pent up because of the, uh, the pandemic. They weren't traveling for the last couple of years or they had more time to, to work on whatever it is that they were their skill and they just blew us away. And uh, this live uh, going live is the most, is the highest level of talent that we've ever had in the history of the AGT. And I usually have my eye on somebody that I think that's definitely the winner and I'm pretty much right. But this year I can't, there's probably, there's more than a handful of acts that are worthy of the million dollars and the show in Vegas. So Howie, what do you think of the, what does it take? What are those qualities that you look for? Uh, wow. <laughs> it's just, wow. There's one word. That's the quality. Wow. You know, uh, talent is subjective. 
And I think that they got to just, they do, they go and they give it their all. This means so much to each and every one of these acts. This is their dream. These are their hopes. This is what they've aspired to do. This is, this is going to be a life-changing moment. You know, if everything they all, we always say like, what are you looking for? And they'll tell you, they want their headlining show in Vegas. They want to travel the world. They want to do concerts. They want, you know, thousands of people to show up at arenas for them. This means so much to each individual act. And uh, when they put everything they have on the line, on the table, in that moment, you could feel it. And now that we're going live on the biggest show in America, you know, they'll either rise to the occasion or be crushed under that pressure. So anything could happen. And that's what makes the live show so much more exciting than any of the other audition episodes. Wow, fan. What is how the background of like the, the being a judge on a talent show live? The behind the scenes got to be crazy, isn't it? It's exciting. I love live. Live is my favorite thing in the world. It's what I do. You know, I'm a stand-up comic. Um, I do a podcast where we don't know what, what people are calling. I just love live. I like anything that's not really, really rehearsed where anything could happen. I like that electricity of, uh, you know, not knowing what's going to happen next and feeling the pressure of the gravity of, of whatever it is. And, you know, especially our show, you know, it, it's live and it's in real time. So, you know, we have a crew of like 200 people in real time during the commercial are building a trapeze. Well, the, the, somebody out back is getting an entire band together, you know, or a choir. And you see, if you go backstage, it's like total organized chaos. I, I like organized chaos, Hallie. I'm a former pro wrestler. So I love organized chaos. It's the best thing because you never know. And the audience loves it. And that's why it's so you're so known in everything, you know, just think about that the, the, because you're on okay. YouTube, podcasting, everything, you really have that brand and you know exactly how to grow the brand even further. Cause you know, you have to step the bar up every year, right. As a brand, as Howie Mandel to be known. Yeah. But on AGT that, you know, I think it just, the, the, the natural bar is stepped up every year just because it's a competition and life is a competition and, you know, talent is a competition. And obviously wrestling is a competition, but I feel like these people are competing to be the best, to be the chosen. So uh, I'm just telling everybody tune into NBC Tuesday nights and Wednesday for the results for uh, the ultimate competition. Appreciate your time, man. My pleasure. Lot, My pleasure. Man. Thank it's great you. to talk to you again and take care. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And I, again, Talk about the Naval Academy. I'm, that's an interesting thing I want to start out with. My guest, the CEO of Minnow, is going to talk. I'm going to talk Naval Academy first. Eric Goss. Eric, thanks for stopping by. And the thing that just gives me reminiscing is the Naval Academy. And the reason that fact is my father uh, passed away three years ago. He he graduated from Naval Academy in 1949, second in his class, went to MIT. Wow. All the different things. He's brilliant. Genius. Not like myself, but I guess I'm a genius when it comes to interviewing people and coming up with the right questions, but just a powerful thing. And again, the Naval Academy, what did that teach you to help you as an entrepreneur today? Well, it was a, I mean, it was transformational for me and in and, and my family's life. I was the first college educated male in my family and we oh, probably God. couldn't afford college without the Naval Academy. So I have a huge uh, spot in my heart for the role that the military plays, not just in defending the country, but also in helping so many families um, just achieve different things in their lives from college education to new careers. And so I wouldn't be able to do, you know, most of the things I've been able to do without that, that start at Navy. And, you know, and I, I think the one of the things that the academies are so good at is giving you so much to do that you have to learn at uh, strategic failure. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much uh, what you're going to get done, but, but learning to prioritize and what you're not going to get done and what you're not going to be as good at. And so, um, and so, you know, it's an intense environment. As I say, it's a subculture because, you know, it's, it's just not like being at a normal uh, public university or non-service academy. And so, um, but, you know, just intensity, focus, discipline, and then just the value of camaraderie in that intense environment. Um, you know, the, there's a the joke, misery loves company. And most of the time at the Naval Academy, <laughs> there's a group of you that's miserable at the same time. <laughs> and so you learn how to endure. But, but the other thing that was a big deal for me was, 
I got involved with the Navigators and and really learned all about Jesus and the gospel while I was there. And that was something that was completely new. And so, um, you know, when I think about the friends I developed and, and how that informed actually a lot of what I'm doing today, I mean, it was transformational. So, you know, think about specifically enough what you take in the military and learning in the Naval Academy and be able to take that and whatever skill set you're taking to being a CEO and having leadership skills. Leadership is, is not the easiest thing in the world to have, to learn. And it's a process. And I guess in hiring the right people and stepping back in certain ways, that, that that's a challenge as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, the one thing that's so different about the service academies that I tell my friends who like when I had the opportunity to work at Amazon and it was so interesting because when I was in the Navy and at the Naval Academy, leadership is in the air. Like the key question is, will I follow him or her? Like, like the, that, that's really a question all the time you're asking, will people follow me? Will I follow him? Will I follow her? When I got into the private sector, leadership wasn't in the culture. There's sort of a sense of people just showing up. And so there's a really a, a leadership vacuum in a lot of organizations because that's not been built into the culture in the way that it's built into the military. Wow. Okay. So let's kind of talk about how you form Minnow. How that how did that happen? Yeah, so it's it's really a culmination of a number of experiences. So as I mentioned, I became a Christian at the Naval Academy, even though I kind of grew up in the church, I really didn't know what that meant. Got involved with the navigators, spent seven years in the military, flying helicopters, working at the Pentagon, managing the news desk, and then went to um, Michigan to get my MBA and ended up at Amazon. And when I was at Amazon, I got there about six months after their IPO. Terrible timing from uh, when to show up. Um, but, uh, you know, the company only had about 350 people at corporate. And I had a chance to work on a ton of digital initiatives, actually launched the first ebook store, first print on demand store, working in the book group. And, you know, and with that, got exposed to digital media and had a passion for digital media and uh, spent seven years at Amazon, ran a whole host of different um, teams there. Moved back to Nashville for family reasons, but while I was in uh, Seattle working for Amazon, actually had the chance to plant a church. And in planning the church, my wife was very involved with setting up the children's ministry. And what we recognized was the the linkage between how what we were doing the children's ministry was impacting the whole family, um, because a lot of parents were new Christians, they didn't really know who Jesus was and what it meant to be a Christian. And so, in a lot of instances, you know, a children's ministry is set up to help people who have elementary questions about the faith. And so, I saw the kind of the strategic importance of what we were doing there. When I moved back to Nashville, I was a chief marketing officer for an e-commerce company just south of Nashville, and then had a friend approach me about, hey, would you be open to starting a company with me? And so we initially did some work with a gentleman by the name of Phil Vischer, who created VeggieTales. Um, and he had a project called Buck Denver Ask What's in the Bible. And because of my e-commerce background, I helped with the commercialization of that, raised the capital for that. And we were outselling the entire Christian retail chain within like 90 days, um, primarily because like we knew what we were doing online because of my experience at Amazon. Wow. And in the process of that, families were saying, hey, we want more products like this. But then we had other creators like Phil saying, hey, I want to be able to sell products like Phil is on your, on, you know, from, from your website. And so as we talked, there's supply and demand. And that, that generally means a, a platform. And you saw this migration to digital. And so all that said, hey, we need to create a platform where we could provide, where we can go get all these great titles that most Christian families don't know about. Yeah. But then also all these creators who are trying to figure out how to make money making Christian content, they could actually, we could be a company that would facilitate that happening and create an economy around Christian content. And so, you know, it really brings kind of, you know, things that I'm passionate about, discipleship, advancement of the gospel, technology, marketing, pop culture, content creation, kind of all those things are meld together, which led to the formation of Minnow today. Wow. So a lot of process for that formation that happens. And you think about specifically enough, what makes you so great at understanding online retail and what it does? So, you know, there's people out there thinking about well, what is the big thing to have success online sales? Yeah, well, I always uh, I heard actually the CEO of Costco say this retail is detail. And uh, and and I learned that in Amazon that digital is detail. One of the most memorable experiences I had was we were sitting in all hands with Jeff Bezos and um, we were launching Super Saver Shipping, which is basically providing free shipping for orders over twenty five dollars. 
And um, it gotten out to the employee base that Jeff had actually been working on the copy. Like we had copywriters, but Jeff himself was actually kind of wordsmithing it. Oh and, uh, and, and someone said like, you're the CEO of the company. Like, why are you messing around with copy? And he said, well, because this initiative is going to cost the company $100 million. And every customer who comes to the website is going to see it. And he said, as CEO of Amazon, I want to represent the company. I want to make sure customers are having a great experience and we're making a good use of that investment. Um, and, you know, and I think that kind of says it right there. If you want to think about e-commerce and online experiences, you've got to be really rigorous in detail and you've got to understand data. Because again, we have a tendency to take a brick and mortar approach, which is I'm just going to sell and get a transaction. Whereas on, when you're online, you can see how people are going through the website, what they're clicking on, what they're looking at. And it's that detail and that, um, that data that actually gives you the insights and how can you build a better business. And you think copy is a big thing. If you can't write good copy, you're, you're not going to have success online. Yeah. The, the, I- For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 